Canadian wildfires creating unhealthy air are forcing more than 120 million people inside along the East Coast and parts of the Midwest. It's Thursday, June 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a Russian general has reportedly been arrested following last weekend's failed revolt. Plus, we hear from a former USC champion about his journey to stardom from a small village in Cameroon. You don't just wake up one day and leave your country without knowing where you're going, knowing that you're taking all the risks in the world. You might not come back alive. Also this hour, a Cambridge high schooler's poem about helping care for his grandfather with Alzheimer's. When Poppy looks in the mirror, does he know the man standing in front of him? Or does he simply stare until something else catches his attention? In sports, Red Sox lose, partly sunny and near 80 today with a chance of rain. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to blanket a number of U.S. cities. Air quality alerts and warnings have been posted in many parts of the Northeast and Midwest, with health officials urging people to limit their time outdoors. In a video posted by the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Maeve McMurdo says people are at risk regardless of their age. No matter whether you have underlying lung problems or not, whether you're at risk or not, there's potentially risk to your health from being outside and inhaling that air pollution. Weather officials say air quality had reached unhealthy levels in parts of New York on Wednesday and is expected to worsen today. The whereabouts of the leader of a Russian mercenary group that led a weekend revolt against Russia's military is again in question. NPR's Charles Maines reports the president of neighboring Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, has said the founder of the Wagner Group is in his country. Lukashenko claims that Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is now in Belarus under the terms of an amnesty deal Lukashenko brokered with the Kremlin to spare Prigozhin's life. Yet Prigozhin's presence in Belarus hasn't been independently verified. Continuing uncertainty surrounding Prigozhin's whereabouts came as Russian authorities identified several airmen killed in fighting with Wagner mercenaries during the weekend uprising. Russian President Vladimir Putin argues the insurrection ultimately failed when confronted with Russian unity for his government and military. Yet Putin also appeared to be taking few chances going forward. The head of Russia's National Guard said Putin ordered his troops be given tanks and heavy weaponry to defend against future domestic attacks. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The Supreme Court is expected to hand down a new round of decisions later this morning. One of the cases before the high court this term could determine the fate of President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Opponents argue that Biden overstepped his authority when he issued the executive order last year. The Federal Reserve has performed its annual stress test on banks in the United States. NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith has the results. The Fed's annual bank stress test is out, and the results are good. The Fed tested 23 of the largest banks in the U.S. and found that they were all in a good position to, quote, weather a severe recession. The Fed ran multiple scenarios, including a commercial real estate crash and a spike in unemployment, and the big banks passed with flying colors. The stress test did not include small or medium-sized U.S. banks. Those are tested every other year. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which passed the Fed's stress test last year, rocked the banking sector in March. The Fed says it's always working to improve testing and that it's important to, quote, remain humble. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Boston City Council is giving its approval to a nearly $4.3 billion city operating budget. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, councillors had been battling for weeks with Mayor Michelle Wu over proposed cuts. That includes their effort to trim the police budget. A group of progressive councillors attempted to override several of Mayor Wu's vetoes in a marathon meeting, but only succeeded on one. And the police budget stayed intact after councillors had targeted it for a cut of roughly $30 million. Councillor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson said deep ideological divisions on the council kept them from making bold changes. Everything progressive that comes through here, not just this body, not just a handful of you voted down. The mayor votes it down too. The final budget includes money for more seats in the city's universal pre-K program and more funding for Boston public housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. By this time next week, traffic will be diverted from the Sumner Tunnel. The Sumner will be closed for two months as the major renovation project enters a new phase. Mass Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says traffic will be detoured to the Tobin Bridge and the Williams Tunnel. You could see a multi-mile backup depending on the time of day. And and again, I think you've heard Massport has been advising something like, you know, up, up to two hours in advance to get to your to your destination. Gulliver recommends using free and discounted subway, commuter rail, or ferry service when traveling to Boston from the North Shore. He expects traffic in the area to be worst on Monday, July 10th. That's the first workday following the July 4th holiday week. An advocate for transportation accessibility is one of Governor Maura Healy's newest hires on the board of directors for the Department of Transportation. Dr. Lisa Iazzoni has been tasked with representing MBTA riders. She's the first member of the disability community to serve on the board. She's also a researcher and professor at Massachusetts General Hospital. Those in the disability community say Iazzoni's appointment will help amplify their voices. U.S. Coast Guard officials in Boston say human remains were likely recovered in the wreckage of the Titan submersible. Parts of the underwater vessel were retrieved from the seafloor yesterday. All five passengers were killed when the Titan imploded during a deep-sea expedition to the wreckage site of the Titanic this month. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox lost to Miami again last night. The final score was six runs to two. The Sox will host the Marlins for the final game of the series tonight. A slight chance of afternoon showers today. Otherwise, we'll have partly sunny skies and highs near 80 degrees. Tonight, partly cloudy and temperatures dip into the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs around 82 degrees. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeet. And I'm Leila Faldil. Russia's president is asserting control after a failed uprising last weekend. Some of Vladimir Putin's generals have not been seen in public, and that has fed questions about who may be under suspicion or under arrest for what they knew of the mercenary mutiny. 
And all of this is being closely watched in neighboring Ukraine. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Kyiv and met a Ukrainian general who is not under arrest. Greg, who is he? Yes, I, I spoke with General Viktor Nazarov. He's the chief advisor to Ukraine's top general. And Nazarov's own background is very interesting. He's 61 now, but as a young officer, he spent nearly a decade in the Soviet Army. So some of his fellow officers at that time are now senior figures in the Russian military. So he's waging war against former comrades in arms. They all wore the same uniform when they began their military careers in the 1980s. Okay, so he clearly has some insights into the Russian military that he's fighting. Does he think this mutiny in Russia is going to change the dynamics on the battlefield in Ukraine? So he's looking at it really just from a military perspective. In that sense, he doesn't really think so. He says the mercenary group led by Yevgeny Prigozhin were the deciding factor in this fight for the eastern town of Bakhmut that lasted for many months. But after the Wagner mercenaries captured the town, uh, the Wagner forces pulled back, saying they needed to regroup, and they handed the town over to the regular Russian army. Let's have a listen. So he's saying here that the, the Wagner forces retreated to camps back from the front lines. They're in the far east of Ukraine. Wagner is seen more as an attack force, not a defensive force. And therefore, they're not expected or weren't expected to play a crucial role now that Russia is mostly on the defensive, trying to stop this Ukrainian offensive. So he doesn't see a huge impact. How did the general describe the current state of Ukraine's offensive? So he said all this new equipment that the U.S. and NATO have been sending make Ukraine a more powerful army capable of an offensive like this. But he was also willing to point out Ukraine's disadvantages. He said Ukraine has lost many of its best, most experienced fighters. It's relying much more heavily on troops that were recently called up. They have limited training and no combat experience. And he also said, based on his background, don't underestimate the Russians. They have deep reserves and are very well entrenched. Now, you told me a little bit about who he is, his history, but I want to hear more about his personal story. He was a Soviet military officer, and now he's fighting his former colleagues. How does he feel about that? Sure. So when the Soviet Union broke up, Ukraine became independent, and he decided to return to his native Ukraine. He was a battalion commander, and before he headed home, he gathered his troops on his last day. And then at this point in our conversation, he switched to English. I invited my colleague, officers, sergeants from the my battalion, and uh, I said them one thing, that never in future we saw each other through the sights of our guns. He hoped they'd never see each other through the sights of the guns, but that's exactly what's happening now. And PR's Greg Myrie in Kiev. Thank you for your reporting. Sure thing. Any day now, the U.S. Supreme Court releases its ruling on college admissions. The court cases challenged policies that consider race as a factor in taking in students to Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Dana Thompson-Dorsey teaches education law and policy at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and she's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for joining us. Is your starting point that race should be a factor in college admissions? Yes, I believe race should be a factor in college admissions. We still have a problem in the United States with racism and discrimination and implicit bias. As long as we're not addressing these issues, race will continue to be a problem or how people perceive race will continue to be a problem in this country. And 
And I guess there's the practical question of what's best for the country and also the legal question, which the Supreme Court is supposed to address of how the law applies here. But let's look at the basic argument of the plaintiffs that the universities are judging people too much on race. Uh, and of course, there are many categories of people. This is not a black-white question. In fact, the argument, a big part of the argument is that Asian Americans have been held back more than anyone. They've been disproportionately denied in an effort at racial balance. Do you see their point of view at all? Yes, I do see their point of view. Uh, they have a problem with checking the box and that being of major consideration. Uh, in terms of Harvard, there is a serious problem they have with uh, legacies. That is, students who are accepted, which I believe is about 40% of the freshman class each year, who are accepted into Harvard because their parent attended or because they have a parent who works at Harvard, or even athletes, and race is considered as, in a fact, as a factor in that as well. But Asian students who argue that they should be admitted on their merit, uh, not on race, and others should not be admitted based on race. But Asians are saying, I have, you know, or we have higher GPAs and SAT scores, or even if it's a graduate program, LSAT or MCAT or GRE scores. So we should be admitted based on those factors. And if everyone did not have to check a box, we would be admitted. Now, I understand the argument they are making. And the argument they're making is actually what many of us who are proponents of affirmative action make, that uh, race has been a factor when it is uh, actually benefiting and has typically benefited uh, white and oftentimes wealthy uh, Americans. And so... I completely understand their point, but because we still have this issue of race and racism and discrimination in our country, that needs to be considered, as well as how we define meritocracy. I guess we should mention with the, the legacy system, as I understand it, you don't automatically get into a place like Harvard because your parent went there, but you get a point, you get a little advantage potentially. Uh, and so that does change the change the results. It's remarkable to see this news, though. This spring, Harvard revealed that almost 30 percent of admitted applicants are Asian American. They've allowed the number of Asians coming in to rise dramatically in the context of this lawsuit. In the way, is that an admission they were holding Asians back in the past? Yes, it is. Uh, in the past, if they have been admitting and purposely uh, admitting less Asian students and then Obviously, this lawsuit comes about. There is a lot of attention now being paid to Harvard, but in a, a negative way. They would then shift their, uh, uh, I guess, review of Asian students' admissions packets and uh, admit more students. And I guess rightfully so if you are basing it solely on merit. Uh, but that just goes to show, uh, show you how universities' policies can shift based on how it's going to benefit them, not mm. necessarily the student or the educational benefit of racial or ethnic diversity. I want to quickly ask one other question here. In multiple cases, the Supreme Court has held that affirmative action is necessary for a time because of past discrimination, but their general idea is we should reach a point in society where it's not necessary. Ideally, we would not judge people on race at all, is their point of view. In the 30 seconds or so that we have, do you accept that basic idea that affirmative action should be temporary, that it should end sometime? I do. I do agree with that. But so should racism. 
so should discrimination, so should the assumption that um, people who are admitted into uh, institutions like Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill who are un- underrepresented minorities are not qualified. When they are very much qualified but are oftentimes seen or appear to be not as qualified because of their race and that they're somehow getting preferential treatment. But for hundreds of years, white people have gotten preferential treatment when black and brown people weren't even allowed to uh, get an education, K-12 education, let alone a higher ed, a higher ed weren't education. Even, weren't even let in the door at one point. Dana Thompson-Dorsey, thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. She's, an, she's an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Millions are waking up this morning to a thick haze from wildfires in Canada. Cities like Chicago, Detroit, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee have been seeing some of the worst air quality readings in the world. As the smoke spreads south and east, people are watching air quality meters and maps and seeing red and purple. How did purple become even scarier than red? Here's NPR's Netta Ulubi. Red is the traditional color of danger of stop signs, of warnings. So it's also the color on the government chart showing the air quality index is more than 150, meaning unhealthy. When it's more than 200, it's purple, very unhealthy. This makes sense to information designer Georgia Lupi. From yellow to orange to red, and purple is the next color in the spectrum. But isn't purple a positive color? Royalty, luxury, the aggressively lovable dinosaur Barney, the L.A. Lakers, the Minnesota Vikings. But Loopy says purple can be dark, livid, and sinister. Think about bruises and the color purple on skin when talking about a disease. None of this was in the air, so to speak, when the Environmental Protection Agency held a conference back in the 1990s. There was a lot of controversial stuff on the agenda, including a brand new color-coded air quality index chart. Scientist Susan Stone was there, along with a number of advocates and state, local, and tribal officials. And I was just totally surprised that colors was the topic that really blew the whole discussion up. They were getting so heated, we need to call a break because otherwise people are going to start shoving each other. Back then, Stone says, the idea of using even red for air quality was somewhat theoretical. It looked like at the time, looking back at the data, that if we were to put red at hazardous, it would never occur. These were the days in the late 90s and early 2000s before the huge wildfires out west. So it was extremely rare to get into the hazardous range. So rare, the EPA thought purple might never be used. Now even purple is not bad enough. The very, very worst color is maroon. That's partly because black does not read well on maps and you cannot see the borders. Still, purple clearly indicates a royal mess. Neto Ulibi. NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Cambridge high schooler shares a poem about helping care for his grandfather with Alzheimer's and trying to understand the meaning of memory. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. 
for much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African-Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and Black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny and near 80 today with a slight chance of showers this afternoon. More clouds move in tonight and it falls to a low around 66. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 82. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person more at yourparttimecontroller.com this is npr it's morning edition from npr news i'm steve inskeep i'm leila Faldil. and i'm a martinez the baddest man on the planet. In his prime, boxer Mike Tyson held that title, and for good reason. Since his retirement, heavyweight fighters have all vied to claim the name for themselves. The man who currently holds it grew up idolizing Tyson, and that's mixed martial arts superstar Francis Ngannou. Matchup with Ngannou! Ngannou stands at six foot four and weighs in at more than 250 pounds of pretty much pure muscle. He holds a record for the world's strongest punch. One strike from him is the equivalent of getting hit full speed by a small car. So it's hard to picture him as a child living in a small village in Cameroon known mostly for its sand mines. When I spoke with him recently, he told me about how he had shoveled sand into trucks all day to support his family when he was around nine years old. We had no choice. We need to survive. So it was like a survival job. Ngannou had dreams to be a heavyweight champion, just like his hero Mike Tyson, but he couldn't slug his way to belts and trophies in Cameroon. So at the age of 26, he left everything behind to chase that dream in Europe. And as you might imagine, that choice was crushingly hard to make. You don't just wake up one day and leave your country, even without knowing where you're going, knowing that uh, you're taking all the risks in the world, you might not come back alive. The risks included crossing the Sahara Desert, sometimes in the back of a smuggler's truck, and many times by foot. And Ghana remembers every country he passed through as he traveled more than 2,000 miles. From Cameroon to Nigeria, then Nigeria, Niger, from Niger to Algeria, then from Algeria to Morocco. 
From Morocco, he needed to somehow get into Spanish territory. Then, even if he wasn't technically on the continent of Europe, he'd officially be on European land. Now, there were only two ways to do that. The first was to go over multiple fences with police patrols and barbed wire. Ngannou attempted that, but failed. So, he tried option number two. The other way was to put the raft, inflatable raft, the one that you usually use in your swimming pool, put it in the ocean and trying to get somewhere that the land in Morocco is close to the land in Europe. Sounds impossible, even deadly. Nganu tried it six times over the course of one year. Between those attempts, he lived in a Moroccan forest where he and other migrants competed with rats for scraps of spoiled food in the trash. You get in this desperate situation and you have to hold on in something. There is not a way back. You don't know if you're going to make it. There is only one thing going on in your life and it's your dream. And even though we were in the forest and couldn't do anything, I could find a refuge in the idea of I have a bright future in boxing. So even in those conditions, Nganu still had to work. I was doing push-ups and (laughs) abs in the forest like crazy. Even now that I'm in all the best condition workout, I can't do like all the push-up that I was doing out there because I have one thing in my mind. He was boxing. One thing. Finally, Nganu and his inflatable raft made it to Spanish waters. There, he was picked up by a Red Cross boat. After two months in Spanish prison, he was given refugee status and freed. Nganu made his way to Paris and joined a fighting gym. That's where his coaches introduced him to this new thing called MMA. And I was like, what's MMA? And <laughs> he's like, Miss Masha. I'm like, okay, cool, fancy, but what it is? <laughs> so he have to explain to me, like, yes, boxing and wrestling and this. I'm like, bro, leave me alone. All what I want is like street boxing. But he gave mixed martial arts a chance, and the success came. Two years after starting the sport, Nganu earned a contract with the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, the biggest mixed martial arts promotion in the world. And then, almost nine years after he first left Cameroon, Nganu fought for the heavyweight championship belt. Oh, knockout for Nganu! When you held that belt, when you became the heavyweight champion of the UFC, I mean, how did you reflect on your journey? Did you think, okay, this is it. I've made it. My dream, even though it's changed, is exactly what I wanted it to be. I remember that night, March 27, when I held that belt, I had a flashback of my life. I was in the arena, wasn't seeing anything else, just like I was in the movie theater and just see my life playing in front of me. And I felt so emotional. I'm like, man, I get my revenge on life. Doesn't matter how much he beat me down, I get here. I have dealt with my past. I have done it. Nganu had reached heights most fighters could only dream about, but his relationship with the UFC was verging on a nightmare. You see, the UFC has been plagued with accusations that they don't pay their fighters enough. And Nganu told me he had to live frugally and even borrow money between fights. The UFC also would not let him follow his first passion, boxing. So, in what shocked the mixed martial arts world, Nganu completed his UFC contract and left. 
Last month, he joined the PFL, a smaller league, but they gave him an equity stake and allowed him to pursue boxing. They also made him chairman of PFL Africa, an initiative to expand MMA in the continent. And Ganu says that excites him the most. It's not going to be for me, but at least he will help some people just like me that had a dream from not have to go to all those risks of have to always go to the Western country is to bring it home, something that belongs to us. Ngannou's decision to leave the UFC at his peak was unprecedented. The biggest fights with the best fighters are there, and critics attacked Ngannou for running from those fights. But Ngannou is not bothered. One thing that I have learned in life, I go for what matters for me, what I care for, is the same way that I get here, so why would I change? At this point, professional-wise, I have done what could be done. I don't want to make my life like a chase of fame. I want to do what matters for me, and that has been the goal since day one. That's Francis Ngannou, former UFC heavyweight champion and current baddest man on the planet. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Invasive pests are threatening one of Lebanon's most valuable exports. Now workers there are trying a new way to save the nation's pine nuts. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick at Innuendo.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The war in Ukraine is expected to be a major focus of today's European Union summit in Brussels. Leaders of the 27 EU nations are scheduled to hear from Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, by video link. Less than a week after an uprising by Russian mercenaries and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the rebellion by members of the Wagner Group against Russia's military shows that Vladimir Putin is failing in Ukraine. This last episode, showing to some extent the internal dimensions of this failure, uh, I think speaks volumes. But uh, I don't want to predict where this is going to go. Blinken was speaking yesterday in New York to the Council on Foreign Relations. Heat warnings and advisories remain in effect in more than a dozen states, including all of Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. The National Weather Service says afternoon highs of 100 degrees are likely in some places. Mose Bouchel with member station KUT in Austin says more extreme heat is expected today in eastern Texas. In much of Texas, our heat waves come with drought, but warmer atmosphere can hold more water. So this time we've had a near tropical like humidity and on top of this extreme heat in parts of the state where that doesn't usually happen. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A man who spent 35 years in prison in connection with a fatal fire in North Adams is getting his conviction overturned. As Adam Frenier reports, he will not have to face a new trial. William Cascone was convicted in 1987 on murder and arson charges in relation to the fire three years before. During a court hearing in April on a request to vacate the conviction, experts called into question findings by investigators as to the cause and origin of the fire. Attorney David Grimaldi represents Cascone. Both of those were wrong, and we know that based on modern arson science. And so the foundation of the Commonwealth's case 35 years ago was faulty, and as a result, uh, Bill spent 35 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. In a statement, the Berkshire District Attorney's Office says it is not seeking a new trial since the house is demolished and it can't evaluate necessary evidence. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Former Connecticut Governor and U.S. Senator Lowell Weicker is being remembered by Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey as a principled leader. Weicker died yesterday following a short illness. Markey says Weicker was a Republican who had an old-fashioned view about what public service is about. He was a Republican from a different era. Uh, During Watergate, he was willing to stand up and to challenge a president of his own party, Richard Nixon. Weicker championed legislation that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. He was 92 years old. Harvard University says it'll improve its women's hockey program after an independent review into the team culture. Harvard began the review after a Boston Globe investigation outlined a number of complaints against longtime head coach Katie Stone. University officials tell the Globe they'll end harmful team traditions. Stone announced her retirement earlier this month. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. The Red Sox couldn't keep up with the Marlins again last night. The final score was 6-2. to two. Miami now leads the Sox two games to one this series. They'll play one more time at Fenway tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with temperatures near 80. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s. Then, for your Friday, most sunny skies and a high in the low 80s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Scientists are detecting mysterious rumblings through the fabric of space. It's the culmination of about 15 years of work, and it should help researchers study black holes. Now, what did the sentences I just said to you even mean? NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce is here to explain. 
Space and time aren't as rigid as our everyday lives suggest. Jeffrey Hasboon is an astrophysicist at Oregon State University. He says you can think of space-time as a giant block of jello. You can really compress it or it can expand and just move in different directions. And if something big out there goes boom, the cosmic jello jiggles. When that kind of jiggling was first detected back in 2015, it was major Nobel Prize winning news. The special detectors that did it registered waves created by a couple of small black holes colliding with each other. Hasboon is part of a group called Nanograv that's been searching for the waves created by much bigger black holes. They have much longer wavelengths, so they stretch over light years, many, many light years, and they come from, we think, giant gargantuan black holes. Ones that are billions of times more massive than our sun. These supermassive black holes lurk at the hearts of galaxies. And scientists think that when two galaxies merge, these black holes start to circle each other and send gravitational waves spiraling out. Hasboon says to try to sense those waves, Nanograph has been looking for the wave's effects on the dead remnants of stars called pulsars. They are very exotic things and they're really extreme. They're very, very dense. They can fit inside, you know, downtown Washington, DC, but then they spin as fast as a blender. As pulsars spin, they send out pulses of radio emissions. Those pulses are very, very regular. So regular that scientists can predict with great precision when the pulses should arrive at Earth. And when gravitational waves roll in, they stretch and compress space-time as they move through. That changes the distance between us and the pulsars. So they're either moving away from us or moving towards us. And because of that motion, the pulses arrive a little bit earlier or a little bit later than we expect. Nanograv now says it's seeing patterns in the timing of pulse arrivals that are consistent with the gravitational waves they've been looking for. We're just starting to see this signal. We can't actually say definitively what the source of the gravitational waves is, just that there are gravitational waves. As they gather more data, they may learn that the waves truly come from supermassive black holes or possibly something even stranger. Gabriela Gonzalez says that's why this is so exciting. Maybe there are things in there that we don't know. She's a gravitational wave researcher at Louisiana State University. She says unlike smaller black holes, which are born when a star collapses in on itself, supermassive black holes are thought to come from a lot of black holes getting together and eating a lot of the mass and the stars that are around the black holes at the center of the galaxy. Finding the waves created when two of them come together could help scientists better understand the nature of these hungry giants. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. That's according to the Alzheimer's Association's annual report. As we near the end of Alzheimer and Brain Awareness Month, we have the personal story from one teenager. Ethan Maggio's grandfather has lived with the disease for six years. When Ethan's 10th grade teacher assigned him a poem to write, he knew right away that he'd write about his poppy and how helping take care of him has changed Ethan's understanding of memory. My grandpa, Hugo Palavecino, immigrated to the U.S. from Chile in the 1970s. He arrived with $10 in his pocket, a small carry-on bag, and the determination to build a new life. As I was growing up, Bobby was always by my side. We built cities out of my Lightning McQueen car characters and played superhero games together. I was always the Marvel hero and he always played the villain. I was nine when he was diagnosed with dementia and only a little older when it became clear that he actually had Alzheimer's. Eventually, my grandmother couldn't care for him on her own anymore and my grandparents moved in with my family. Now, I help my grandpa shower, get dressed, brush his teeth, and trim his beard. I help him take his medicine and try to calm him down when he gets confused or frustrated. Every day, I see the devastating impact of memory loss. There are moments when he's lucid, when Poppy, the real Poppy, comes flooding back. But in an instant, He is slowly fading away from me again. When my 10th grade humanities teacher asked us to write a poem, I knew I wanted to focus on Poppy and my experience as his grandson during this time. The experience has made me think a lot about the notion of memory. I wonder, does his essence as a person stem from my memories? or his memories ultimately would define him. My own childhood memories are full of love and affection, and that's what I try to hold on to, because I'm choosing to believe that my grandpa is the poppy I remember. Here's a part of my poem. Poppy, what is a memory? Is it simply what we remember, or is it what a person means to me. Sometimes it feels like what was once clear is now burnt to embers. When Poppy looks in the mirror, does he know the man standing in front of him? Or does he simply stare until something else catches his attention? His mind is an endless blur. Some days he's gone and some days he's there. In the echo, He resides in the grainy, young memories filled with love. But the most current and clear memory of him is one of confusion. The poppy of memory was always clear, not in the poppy in front of me. 16-year-old Ethan Maggio and his family live in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, as Canadian wildfire smoke continues to cause poor air quality in the U.S. and hot temperatures persist in the South, we look at the health risks associated with heat and smoke. In your forecast, partly sunny and near 80 today. There's a slight chance of showers this afternoon, mid-60s and mostly cloudy tonight. Then we end the week tomorrow with mostly sunny skies and low 80s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Join a community of problem solvers at the school ranked first in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's hands-on approach helps you develop critical thinking and communication skills so you can lead, innovate, and inspire. Begin your entrepreneurial leadership journey at babson.edu success. A Cambridge-based cancer startup has a new investor. K36 Therapeutics is getting nearly $70 million from Bristol-Myers Squibb. That money will mainly go toward clinical trial work on K36's blood cancer drug. Boston MedFlight is adding a jet to its fleet of emergency vehicles. The jet will be able to transport patients longer distances. It joins a group of five helicopters and eight ambulances. Bagelsaurus in Cambridge has been ranked one of the best bagel places in America. The report from Bon Appetit includes it in its list of the best bagel places outside of New York. Rose Foods in Portland, Maine and Rover Bagel in Biddeford, Maine also made the list. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. President Biden's age returned to the news amid the revelation that he's using a machine to help with sleep apnea. In other countries, the dominance of older politicians has led to concerns about what some observers call silver democracy. That's when older politicians make policies that disproportionately benefit older voters. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports about one of the world's most aged societies, Japan, where rejuvenating politics is seen as tough. In April, a lone attacker lobbed what looked like a pipe bomb at Prime Minister Fumio Kishida as he gave a stump speech in the city of Wakayama. Nobody was hurt. Police arrested a 24-year-old suspect named Ryuji Kimura. Last June, Kimura sued the government. He reportedly wanted to stand for election to Japan's upper house of parliament. But he claims he was unfairly barred because he was under the minimum age of 30 and was required to put up a deposit equivalent to more than $22,000. Kimura has not explained his motives. Investigators are looking into whether the lawsuit had anything to do with it. But the discussion in Japan has already turned to age and politics. This is being introduced as a story where he has kind of resentment towards the politicians who don't 
allow younger people to run for office. That's Jeffrey Hall, an expert on Japanese politics at Kandai University of International Studies near Tokyo. In Japan, citizens over 65 form the nation's largest voting bloc, and they receive an overwhelming share of government welfare spending. Yale University postdoctoral associate Charles McLean has done research that shows that while Scandinavian countries, for example, might spend three to four times more on the elderly than they do on young families per capita, you know, or on children, say, per capita, countries like Japan or the U.S., it's much more like 20 times more. McLean also notes that Japan has one of the lowest proportions of young politicians among developed economies. It's not that voters won't vote for young candidates, he says. A reason why countries like Japan and the U.S. too have very few young people in office is that elections are just prohibitively expensive for candidates. They require not just cash, but name recognition and personal networks. That favors either older candidates or the offspring of political dynasties. Some activists have tried to drum up youth political participation, such as with this satirical video that came out ahead of elections in 2019. In it, older voters tell younger ones that voting is a waste of their time. Pension funds going bankrupt? It doesn't matter. I'm getting one. Global warming? I don't care what happens 20 or 30 years from now. The video's creator, 29-year-old comedian and activist Nana Takamatsu, says the problem is that many young Japanese despair of changing their country through politics. This is because we do not teach people in school how to change society. I am concerned that if this situation continues, there will be more copycats who think that the way to change society is through force, through terrorism. This month, the Kishida administration pledged to double spending on child care to halt Japan's plunging birth rate. Prime Minister Kishida did not detail exactly how he's going to pay for the increase. One possible problem, says Jeffrey Hall, is that... The older voters might react negatively to something that's too expensive or might cause them to have to pay for basically a future that they won't deal with or a situation that they don't quite understand. Because when they were young, a single income was often enough to raise a family. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. This is NPR News. You're starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up at 8.15, the dust is settling after last weekend's attempted mutiny in Russia. We look at who has power there now and whether they could pose a threat to Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's 7.49. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world... Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community... Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield... Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Canadian wildfire smoke is causing poor air quality in much of the U.S. A Russian general is reportedly under arrest after last weekend's failed revolt against Vladimir Putin. And protests are erupting in France after police there shot and killed a 17-year-old delivery driver. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, 
partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Partly sunny with highs in the upper 70s today. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. Tonight, mostly cloudy, and it drops to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and in the low 80s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fawzid. Pesto, hummus, or eggplant stuffed with lamb, the pine nut is a beloved ingredient in Mediterranean cuisine. I love pine nuts, and it's been a source of big money in Lebanon. Its export is so valuable, they call it white gold. But an invasive species of bug is killing off the harvest. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports. Amid the tranquility of a forest of stone pines in Lebanon, I watch as a group of men climb up into the trees. Wow. They start off on ladders, but the ladders only go less than halfway up the tree. And then they just climb up. There's no harnesses. It's amazing to watch. There's no hesitation. They speed up this vertical trunk. One guy, strong and skinny, climbs nearly a hundred feet, bits of bark falling away from under his trainers. In the canopy, he uses a long metal pole to knock pine cones to the ground. The cones are collected into sacks and then poured into buckets to be taken away. Elias Naime, the head of the Union of Stone Pine Growers, tells me some 70,000 families rely on the pine nut industry. Stone pines cover many of Lebanon's mountain ranges and provide essential income for rural communities. Naime says pine nuts were also an important export, bringing in some $150 million a year. But these days, Naime tells me through an interpreter, farmers can't harvest enough pines even for domestic demand. Now, in Lebanon, we are importing pine seeds. The cause is an invasive species of insect called the western conifer seed bug, or Leptoglossus orientalis. Measuring around two centimetres, it sucks out the milky white nuts inside the cones. Scientists believe it arrived in Lebanon over a decade ago and then spread and spread until it seemed to affect every forest. Naime picks up a pine cone from the forest floor. This cone, when it was still a bud, the leptoglossus came at it and sucked at the bud. So now this cone you see in front of you, it has no pine seeds inside it. It's just wood. There is no economic value uh, whatsoever. Most of the cones around us are desiccated and shrunken. It's quite hard to find one that's actually okay. This is half-half, but maybe it was also right. Naima believes the only solution is insecticides. He says in past years the government used military helicopters to spray insecticides on some parts of the forest. But then, in 2019, the country was plunged into a crippling economic crisis and the practice stopped. No more spraying occurred. 
and the industry has been deteriorating ever since. A spokesperson in Lebanon's Ministry of Agriculture told us they don't have the money for the insecticides and beekeeping communities say they harm their bees. Nabil Nemer, an entomologist at Lebanon's Catholic University, explains the insecticides also kill other insects. To use uh, the helicopter spraying, it is more dangerous to the ecosystem than, for example, uh, uh, leaving the insect in the, in the ecosystem. One proposal would be to use drones that just spray individual pine trees specifically, but Lebanon doesn't have enough drones or operators. Maybe the best solution, Nimr says, is to try to keep the trees healthy by still pruning them and thinning forests and wait for a natural predator to take hold. A parasite is now starting to have some effect on the bug, but to control the population could take years, maybe even decades. And Elias Naimer from the Pine Growers Union says time is exactly what those that rely on the pine industry don't have. There is total hopelessness. So many families are resorting to having to sell their land, which has no more economic value to them. He understands the concerns for the ecosystem, but he says without a fast solution, the trees are at risk of being cut down as landowners clear them for other ways to make a living, like to make space for new crops. He talks to me on the flat roof of his home, where piles of pine cones are drying in the sun, making a crackling sound. The pine nuts are separated from the cones, and then, in a small processing plant, they're fed through a series of machines that crack the hard shells and separate them from the white pine nuts that come pouring out into baskets. They're worth between $50 and $80 for a couple of pounds. Here it is, the, the pine nuts have been threshed, left their shells behind, and all that's coming out now is white gold. They're gathered up and packed, a traditional harvest with an uncertain future. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Xaibe, Lebanon. In Aro, Spain, people celebrate La Batalla del Vino today. Translated, that's the Battle of Wine in one of the world's most famous wine regions. This battle is loosely based on a 13th century land dispute between Aro and a neighboring village. Each year on St. Peter's Day, locals and tourists get together not only to drink wine, but get soaked in it. Participants show up dressed in white and leave drenched in purple. They spray each other with water guns filled with red wine and dump the drink on one another. Now, the festivities here really begin the night before. So everyone descends upon the town square and and, uh, they have uh, live bands, DJs and such. Shane Baisden works for PP Travel, which is an agency that takes groups to several large festivals. Most people drink a local drink called a calimacho. Calimacho is a cocktail made with equal parts Coca-Cola and red wine. Okay. And they just party through the night. Baisden has gone six times to the wine battle, where an estimated 70,000 liters of grapes are spilled each year. And remember, please spray wine responsibly. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden.
Near 80 today under partly sunny skies. There's a slight chance we may see some showers this afternoon. Tonight, overcast and mid-60s. Then it'll be Friday and we'll have mostly sunny skies along with temperatures in the low 80s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Protesters have set cars and public buildings on fire in Paris as unrest spreads over the death of a 17-year-old boy killed by police. It's Thursday, June 29th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the air in large parts of the Northeast and Midwest has become dangerous because of smoke from Canadian wildfires. If you inhale a bunch of particles, particulate matter, there's a systemic inflammatory reaction in the body that can actually trigger heart attacks and strokes. Plus, Democrats are targeting North Carolina in 2024, but many younger voters there have mixed feelings about the party. Biden's 80 and Trump, he's like 77, something like that. So they're, they're going up there. So I think if, if we saw a younger candidate, I think that would be beneficial. Also this hour, a U.N. investigator has found that Guantanamo Bay detainees continue to face inhuman treatment. Red Sox lose, partly sunny and near 80 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is warning of potential disruptions in air travel over the holiday weekend. Airline companies are up against a July 1st deadline to retrofit planes with updated equipment to prevent interference from transmissions by wireless companies. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says airlines need to plan accordingly over the next several days. For those aircraft not yet upgraded, it is going to be an impact. And so uh, we're making sure the airlines have been reminded of their responsibility to operate realistic schedules. And if they know that they're going to have equipment issues with these aircraft that are still waiting their turn to be upgraded, they need to have that reflected in their schedules now so that passengers are not surprised or left in the lurch. The administration says more than 80 percent of the domestic fleet serving airports has been updated. Airlines have been forced to delay and cancel hundreds of flights within the U.S. this week, in part because of severe weather. The White House is releasing new plans to help homeless veterans in the country. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the investments come as the administration tries to meet its goal of permanently housing at least 38,000 vets this year. The Department of Veterans Affairs will award funding for legal services for veterans who are facing evictions or need help accessing public aid. The $11.5 million grant is a first-of-its-kind program, says Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough. In fact, legal support can be the difference between coming home, becoming homeless in the first instance or having a safe, stable house 
and a roof over their heads. The Department of Housing and Urban Development is also providing more than $3 billion to help communities address homelessness, including for homeless veterans. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Angry protests are continuing across France. Rebecca Rossman reports demonstrators took to the streets after a 17-year-old boy was fatally shot by a police officer during a traffic stop earlier this week. French President Emmanuel Macron on Thursday called a crisis meeting with his ministers to discuss the rising tensions. More than 150 arrests were made during the latest wave of demonstrations Wednesday evening. Protesters were seen lighting vehicles and buildings on fire and throwing stones and firecrackers at police. Police responded with tear gas to disperse the crowds. The 17-year-old victim's mother, meanwhile, posted a video on TikTok calling for a revolt. The family has also organized a silent march that will take place in the square where the boy was killed. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Paris. You're listening to NPR News. In Washington. This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. A portion of the Green Line's B branch will shut down for 12 days in July. That's while crews work to replace nearly 3,000 feet of track near Packard's Corner. WBOR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. It might seem a little on the nose to shut down the Green Line near the spot where a train recently derailed. But the T's Gwen Dunleavy says the work has been on the books for about a year. We've done numerous of these shutdowns to try to bring the track up to like new condition. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Kenmore and Boston College. Cody Leong lives along the B line and says he's been avoiding taking the train because it's been slow. He says the disruption may actually benefit his commute. I actually think the buses will be faster than the T's, so the shuttle buses could be a good option. The repairs are scheduled to take place July 17th through the 28th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A group of Massachusetts lawmakers are looking to ban book bans in the state. That includes in schools. Democratic State Rep Jim Hawkins of Attleboro says he was inspired to file the bill last week after seeing attacks on books about racial justice. He says we shouldn't hide the nation's and the state's history with racism. He also noted the attacks the LGBTQ plus community has faced. This only makes them more vulnerable by not letting our children read about different lifestyles. Certainly them, uh, people of color, if we're not sharing books that have to do with, with scary things that happened, the people who are most vulnerable will suffer the most. Illinois became the first state to outlaw book bans earlier this month. State health insurer MassHealth may have paid more than $84 million for services for out-of-state patients in the last five years. That's according to a report released by the state auditor's office. MassHealth requires patients to live in-state to remain eligible for coverage. The state's executive office of Health and Human Services disputes the report's findings and methodology. A new study from the Partnership for Financial Equity shows Black and Latino households in Boston received a record number of mortgages in 2021, but it also concludes that disparities in lending still persist. The report's data show no Black residents received mortgages in Alston or Back Bay in 2021. Less than 1 percent of mortgages in Charlestown, Seaport, and South Boston went to Black people. Spencer Cohen is a senior research fellow for the Woodstock Institute. He says he's not surprised. 
what I find disappointing about this is that if I had, had done this study 20 years ago, it would have been the same. Things have not changed. White residents received over 71% of home loans. That's despite representing less than 45% of the population. It's 807. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Red Sox fell to the Miami Marlins for the second time in a row this series. The team lost by four runs. The final score was 6-2. to two. They play again at Fenway just after 6 tonight. A slight chance of afternoon showers today. Otherwise, we'll have partly sunny skies with highs near 80 degrees tonight. Partly cloudy and temperatures dip to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs around 82 degrees. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Falden. Coming up, you're going to hear Steve talk to a Russia expert about what a failed mercenary mutiny over the weekend in Russia means for Putin's strongman image. Is his grip on power under any real threat? But first, smoke and heat are making it unhealthy to breathe in parts of the U.S. Yeah, the heat wave in the southwest has spread. Parts of the Midwest and East Coast are getting smoke from Canada's wildfires. And NPR health correspondent Allison Aubrey is joining us this morning to discuss just how unhealthy this all is. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so we've seen images from Chicago and Detroit, now smoke again in New York and in the D.C. area. How bad is this for people's health? Sure. Well, in the Chicago area, the air quality index is hovering above 200, which is very unhealthy in Washington, D.C. right now. It's about 165, also unhealthy. I spoke to Dr. Ravi Kalhand. He's a pulmonologist at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. He told me with the heavy smoke and haze, these tiny, minute particles from the forest fires can get into people's lungs, and this can trigger a flare-up for people with asthma or chronic lung disease. And associations are pretty clear in the medical literature that if you inhale a bunch of particles, particulate matter, there's a systemic inflammatory reaction in the body that can actually do things like trigger heart attacks and strokes. He says susceptible adults should limit outdoor exposure, consider masking when going out, and invest in high-quality filters or air purifiers for their homes. Bottom line, he tells his patients to limit outdoor activity when air quality index hits 100. And right now, in many places from Chicago to D.C., it's much higher than that. You can check out the air quality in your own town at the website airnow.gov. Okay. So what about people who don't have asthma or chronic lung disease, generally healthy people? Is the smoke and heat a concern for people who don't have any of these conditions? Well, short-term exposure to the particulates from the forest fires is manageable, doctors tell me, and air quality is supposed to start improving tomorrow in many parts of the country. But Dr. Callahan says when the air quality index is at 200, it's the equivalent of smoking about a half pack of cigarettes, and that's not likely to harm someone one time. But what if these exposures keep coming and coming, he asks. If the frequency of those days increase, or if the exposure occurs when 
the person is younger, spends more time outdoors, then it probably has more long-term impacts on health and creates, you know, a true public health problem that we need to understand. He's actually starting a big national study to examine how smoke and other environmental factors can impact millennials' lung health. Okay, so now that we've discussed all the unhealthiness of the smoke in the air, let's talk yeah. about the heat wave and how unhealthy that is, which has been moving north and east. Does the heat combined with the wildfire smoke mean even more work for our lungs? Well, the high heat can trigger ground-level ozone, or smog, which is a gas that is harmful to our health. Smog forms when two types of air pollution, volatile organic compounds and oxides of nitrogen, which come from tailpipes and smokestacks, react with each other in the heat and sunlight. And Dr. Callahan says this can be dangerous too. Ground-level ozone, when inhaled by people, is quite damaging to the respiratory tract, the respiratory epithelium has a very high susceptibility to injury and inflammatory reactions from ground level ozone. So when you have heat and wildfire smoke, you have two things that can trigger respiratory problems, the fine particulates from the smoke and the ground level ozone in the heat. And when conditions are ripe for both to happen at the same time, it stands to reason it can be bad for our health. NPR's Allison Aubrey, thanks. Thank you. How much does a mutiny in Russia really matter? It was startling when Russian mercenaries turned away from Ukraine and drove toward Moscow. Rather than crush that uprising, President Vladimir Putin persuaded the leader Yevgeny Prigozhin to leave. Outside analysts say that makes Putin look weak. Andrew Weiss has his own view of this. He directs research on Russia and Eurasia at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning, sir. Great to be here, Steve. Uh, does this episode show Putin's vulnerability? Everything about the war in Ukraine, which has been a debacle since it was launched in February 2022, has been a big stain on Putin's reputation and I think has raised fundamental questions about what motivates him and his staying power as Russia's leader. Okay, uh, but is he actually vulnerable? Is there a danger that he, uh, th that he could lose power? So amid all the drama of the past several days, which was truly remarkable, we lose sight of a couple things. One, Russia is not a democracy. Vladimir Putin is not running for re-election. Two, the things that keep him in power are his willingness to knock heads, the amount of sort of coercive, repressive power, which hasn't really been tapped that much in this crisis. And then lastly, the passivity, inertia, and fear that are prevalent throughout the entire society, but are concentrated in part in the Russian elite. So the idea that someone's going to rise up against him or throw their loyalty to Prigozhin, all of that to me seems rather far-fetched. Uh, I just want to note uh, your background in talking about this. You have written a Putin biography called Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. I think you're telling me, based on your research, that the Russian elite has a pattern now of almost a quarter century of essentially doing whatever this man says. Yeah, the learned helplessness of the Russian elite is truly remarkable. Not a single person has stood up who has real weight in the Russian system and said, I can't take it anymore, and criticized Putin, said this is a horrible stain on Russia or my own reputation. The Russian elite have adapted and gotten in line. And I think after this incident, which was truly destabilizing and raised a lot of questions about who's in charge and you know who, who allowed a person with a catering background to assemble an off-the-books army over the past decade, all of those kinds of questions and the sorting out are going to be 
big focus for Vladimir Putin. He's going to tighten the screws. He's going to try to intimidate people. And the Russian elite are going to suck it up. Now, with that said, this former caterer who became the leader of a mercenary organization did rise up and say something is wrong here and launched what seemed to be a a mutiny, an attempt to decapitate the military leadership. And now we're following these unconfirmed reports of a general perhaps arrested, uh, other leaders not being seen in public, questions about who's under suspicion. Is it possible that there were people inside the system who, even if they didn't speak out publicly, were trying to remove Putin or weaken Putin or change something? Well, think about it. Russia is a country run by its national security apparatus. That apparatus is sprawling and basically sucks up about 26% or so of the entire state budget. Hmm. The people who oversee the national security bureaucracy hate each other's guts and are constantly jockeying for favor with Putin or more resources. Much of what Prigozhin was up to, including over this weekend and in all of his public comments and activity on social media in recent months, was about treating in front of the boss and saying, your career top brass have let you down. It's my guys who can deliver for you on the ground in Ukraine. This was largely about the competition within the national security apparatus. It was not about removing Putin from power. Oh, this is interesting. So you're telling me this was a competition essentially for Putin's favor among various people. Absolutely. And the Russian military leadership has underperformed dramatically throughout this war. The two people who Prigozhin has centered his attacks on, the uh, Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, and the commander of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov, are widely hated, including within those organizations. They're seen as incompetent. But now Putin is stuck with them. And the real test will be, does he remove them after this avalanche of criticism by Prigozhin, who, after all, is now seen as a traitor? It's a very dysfunctional system. Now, we've just got a few seconds here, but I want to ask. It's easy to see the Russian elites as cowardly or weak instead of being strong or brave. But is there another way to think of this, that when the Russian elites think about their interests, their interests still lie with supporting Vladimir Putin? Absolutely. They're complicit in the horrible criminality and atrocities that Russian forces have brought to Ukraine. Their, I think, de facto position right now is hang together or we're going to hang separately. Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of a biography of Vladimir Putin. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Democrats are looking to retake the House in 2024, and one of the states they're targeting is North Carolina. Trump won the state in 2020 by less than 75,000 votes. For Democrats to win there, they need to maintain support with young voters. But many members of Gen Z who are now eligible to cast ballots next year have mixed feelings about the party and President Biden. NPR's Elena Moore reports. It's hot and sunny at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, as new student orientation is in full swing. A&T is the largest historically black university in the country, and many of those students are gearing up to vote for the first time next year. I think it would be a, a nice refresh for us to get someone even in their 50s, you know, like even that will be good. That's Solomon Hayes Brown, a sophomore from Charlotte who's working orientation. He says he'll still vote Democrat next year, but he says young folks are turned off by the older frontrunners. Biden is 80 and Trump, he's like 77, something like that. So they're, they're getting up there. So if, if we saw a younger candidate, I think that would be beneficial. 
A&T is no stranger to political drama. The campus was split into two separate congressional districts, giving Republicans a distinct advantage in this part of the state. Courts ruled that unconstitutional, and now the campus sits in one district, filled with young voters and black voters, two groups that Democrats count on to show up to the polls. That's why the president and first lady visited the school last year. Rising senior and Greensboro native Charity Ewing remembers that. And it was just really nice to be able to see what their future plans are, so I would love to see him carry that out. Ewing isn't excited about a Trump-Biden rematch. And she's not alone. According to NPR's latest polling, Biden's approval with voters under 30 is just 38%. That's lower than any other age group. Elena Moore, NPR News, Greensboro, North Carolina. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBOR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, unrest is spreading in France over the death of a 17-year-old shot by police during a traffic stop outside Paris. Protesters have set cars and buildings on fire in response to a video of the boy's death that contradicts the original police account of events. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. For much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and Black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny and near 80 today with a slight chance of showers this afternoon. More clouds move in tonight and it falls to a low around 66. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Friday with a high near 82. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. It's time for our June Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner KFF Health News. Welcome, doctor. Oh, good to be back with another outrageous story. Absolutely. So who are we meeting today? Today we're meeting Bethany Birch from Kingsport, Tennessee, 
Her story starts way back in 2016 when her gallbladder was removed. But this is really a story about a medical bill that a patient never received and the expectation under the Affordable Care Act that nonprofit hospitals try to connect low-income patients with financial help, and that doesn't always happen. All right, let's uh, go to KFF Health News reporter Bram Sable-Smith, who has Bethany's story. For months, Bethany Birch tried to manage the pain in her chest. Food made it worse, so she took antacids. When that didn't work, she avoided eating. She says this went on for eight months. And I ended up losing like 25 pounds at that time because I wasn't eating at all. This was back in 2016. One night, the pain just would not go away. So she went to the emergency room. An ultrasound revealed she needed her gallbladder removed. And they started having me prepped within an hour. Bethany was 23, uninsured, and her housing situation was unstable. After she was released from the hospital, she spent months crashing with family. So it was a pretty rough situation because at the time, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a driver's license or anything. The hospital she went to is now part of the health system, Ballad Health. Ballad says it sent three bills to Bethany, but Bethany says she never received them, probably because the hospital did not know where she lived. Then, two years later, after Bethany was back on her feet, she got a knock at her door. She was served court papers for nearly $12,000 in medical debt for the gallbladder removal, plus a previous trip to the ER. I was so shaken up. I didn't know what it meant to be, like, sued for that type of thing. I didn't know what would happen. Ballot Health operates hospitals in Tennessee and Virginia, and it has a history of suing patients. The New York Times did an analysis and found that in 2018, the same year that Ballard sued Bethany, the health system sued more than 6,700 patients over medical debt. When Bethany had her day in court, she was nervous. She wasn't able to afford a lawyer. She just had her dad for support. She met with the debt collection company representing the hospital and worked out a payment plan. Since then, she's paid over $5,000. But that day in court, the judge also tacked on an interest rate and that interest has been piling up. By May of this year, she owed another $2,700 just from interest on top of her original bill. I'm barely chipping away at this debt by paying $100 a month. All nonprofit hospitals are required to have a financial assistance policy, and Bethany might have qualified. A timeline from Ballad shows the hospital knew Bethany was single, uninsured, and unemployed when she went to the ER back in 2016. The health system says it did include information about financial assistance in the three bills that Bethany says she did not get. And they say a financial counselor left her a voicemail. Bethany says she did not receive that message either, likely because her pay-as-you-go phone plan did not have funds at the time. Since a court date, Bethany had been making her payments for over four years. Along the way, she tried to settle her debt twice, but with no luck. Then in May, after we started reporting her story, Bethany again offered to settle. This time, they settled. That was Bram Sable-Smith with our partner, KFF Health News. We're back uh, with uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal. Doctor, I knew exactly what Bethany was feeling when she said that she was chipping away at this bill that just didn't seem to get smaller. And it seems like Bethany is someone who, who needed financial help when she first went to the hospital. So are hospitals required to help here? Yeah, the Affordable Care Act requires nonprofit hospitals to make quote-unquote, reasonable efforts to determine if a patient qualifies for financial assistance before they take into court. And that review could have been done, maybe should have been done, before she was sent a bill. 
Instead, as happened in Bethany's case, it's often bill first, do the financial check later, and it's really not fair to patients. And Bethany ultimately was sent information about financial assistance. Oh, sure. They sent the information, but along with a big bill and after her surgery. And remember, the onus was on Bethany to fill out all these applications for financial help. Gathering all those supporting documents for those forms can be complicated, especially for patients like Bethany who are young, living in unstable circumstances. And really, the complicated applications can scare patients away from applying in the first place. Now, one good thing is that consumer advocates are pushing hospitals to automatically screen patients to see if they qualify for charity care or discounts. And Ballot Health did make that change. The health system now offers what's called presumptive eligibility ever since 2020. That lifts the burden of applying, making it much easier to access the financial assistance you qualify for. And then when Bethany landed in court, uh, the backbreaker, which uh, is an interest rate that was added to what she already owed, that was the painful part more than almost maybe anything else. Yeah, exactly. An extra 7%. That was the default interest rate under Tennessee law at the time of her court judgment. That interest makes it harder for people to dig out of medical debt, which is why um, we estimate four in 10 American adults have it. And because of that court judgment, Bethany didn't qualify for Ballot's new financial assistance program. So uh, just so unfair. Yeah, it seems really unfair. That interest rate really added up before Bethany was able to settle her case. To help, some states have moved to cap or even ban interest payments on medical debt for low-income patients, which seems the right thing to do. Financial protection experts say our health system needs to find more ways to prevent medical debt from going to court in the first place, though. And, you know, here's one tip for patients. People are shy about asking for financial aid. Don't be afraid when you're in the hospital to ask if you qualify. When faced with huge medical bills like we see in the U.S., many people worry they won't qualify for help. But in fact, because the bills are so big, many patients do. And you don't know if you qualify unless you ask, right? Right. So ask first before you get the bill. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We visit a Colorado art center that's helping queer teenagers express who they are by making their own fashion at a time when non-binary gender identity is under attack in America. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University with a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Tens of millions of people in the U.S. remain under air quality alerts. Smoke from wildfires in Canada continues to cause hazy skies and poor air quality in the upper Midwest, the Northeast, and the Mid-Atlantic, as well as areas of the Carolinas and Georgia. Dr. Maeve McMurdo is with the Cleveland Clinic. No matter whether you have underlying lung problems or not, whether you're at risk or not, there's potentially risk to your health and being outside and inhaling that air pollution. The alerts cover cities such as Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Washington, D.C. Later this morning, Virgin Galactic is scheduled to take three passengers to the edge of space in what will be the company's first flight with paying customers. NPR's Jeff Brumfield says final preparations are underway in New Mexico. On board the company's Unity spacecraft are three Italians from the nation's Air Force and National Research Council. Unity is a rocket plane that can fly to over 50 miles above the Earth. That's not high enough to reach orbit, but it will allow the crew to conduct some brief experiments in low gravity. The beginning of commercial flights for Virgin Galactic has been long delayed, due in part to an accident in 2014 that destroyed an earlier model of the spaceship and killed a test pilot. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Union workers at Encore Boston Harbor have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract with Wynn Resorts. The union says it's suspending its strike deadline as a result. Union members will vote to ratify the agreement tomorrow. They say the new contract includes all the benefits they were asking for. There's good news for some Eversource customers in Massachusetts. Beginning July 1st, the basic service rate for electricity will drop by over 30 percent. For the average household, this could mean savings of between 40 to 50 dollars per month. WBOR's Miriam Wasser explains why this is happening. New England uses a lot of natural gas to create electricity. So electricity prices tend to reflect fossil fuel prices, says Joe Daniel. He's an energy expert with the think tank RMI. Daniel says electricity prices in the region rose sharply last winter after Russia invaded Ukraine and sent energy markets into a frenzy. You started to see late 2022, early 2023, prices started to come back down to what I'll say is like historical averages. Daniel says a relatively mild winter also contributed to lower natural gas prices. The other big electric utility in the state, National Grid, decreased its electric rate for customers in May. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Governor Moore Healy says a new billboard campaign is meant to promote Massachusetts as a state that's welcoming and safe for everyone. The state's tourism board launched the campaign aimed at the LGBTQ plus community in Florida and Texas. It features billboards with same-sex couples and the words Massachusetts for us all. We want them to know that they can come to Massachusetts to grow a family, to start a business, to grow a business, and to live a life with the fullness of opportunity that they should have that right now isn't happening in some other parts of the country. The $750,000 campaign will be on 12 digital billboards across the two states for a month. It's 833.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox could not keep up with the Marlins again last night. The final score was 6-2. to two. Miami now leads the Sox by two games this series. They'll play one more time at Fenway tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with temperatures near 80. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s and will be mostly cloudy. Then for your Friday, most Mostly sunny skies and a high in the low 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldid. People in France are protesting a police shooting. An officer shot and killed a 17-year-old boy. The officer had stopped the teenager just outside of Paris for a traffic violation. Police said the officer shot in self-defense after the teen rammed his car into the police vehicle. Video posted on social media showed the cops shooting into that vehicle, which triggered such a strong reaction that President Emmanuel Macron called a crisis meeting today. Reporter Rebecca Rossman is in Paris and has been following this story. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. So tell us about the protests overnight. Well, clashes actually first erupted on Tuesday night in the Paris suburb of Nanterre, which is where the incident took place. But last night is where we really saw the protests start to spread to other parts of the country, cities like the southern city of Toulouse or Lille in the north. 35 people were arrested in Paris alone, and you saw vehicles and buildings being set on fire. Then you had demonstrators shooting fireworks and throwing stones at police, who then responded by spraying tear gas to disperse the crowds. And the government has deployed 2,000 police officers in and around Paris alone to maintain order. And what is the government saying about the shooting? Well... There's this crisis meeting today, as was mentioned, but the government has acted quite quickly, I have to say, to condemn the situation. Here's French President Emmanuel Macron reacting to what happened. So he's saying what happened was unexplainable and inexcusable, and Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne also said the police officer who fired the shot clearly didn't comply with the rules. And I should point out that this sort of really quite quick and quite blunt reaction is unusual for the government, which has historically been quite cautious about criticizing the police. Interesting. So clearly they understand this has struck a national nerve. But what about the family of the 17-year-old who was killed? Have they said anything? Mm, Yeah. So the boy's mother has posted a video on TikTok calling for a revolt for her son. And the family Mm. has also organized a silent march this afternoon in the square where he was killed. I want to understand what the protesters are demanding. And do protesters see this killing as part of a larger pattern in France? I think what they are trying to do is seize this moment as an opportunity to open a wider debate about what they see as systemic police abuse, particularly in the working class suburbs. You know, there's long been complaints of police brutality and discrimination in these areas, especially against lower income households and racial minorities. Last year, there were 13 people killed after being stopped for traffic violations. And people in France have called out this kind of thing before when it's happened. And we saw some protests in the wake of George Floyd's killing in 2020. But this 
one, especially with this video, it just hits closer to home. And you have some lawmakers expressing concern, saying they're worried about police brutality in France mirroring what they've seen happening in the U.S. So I think we can expect not just more protests, but a wider conversation here about this issue. Reporter Rebecca Rossman in Paris. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. It's largely slipped from public notice, but the United States is still holding 30 men at the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, that was established after the September 11 attacks. Some are suspected of plotting those attacks. A new report from a United Nations investigator finds conditions at the detention center are, quote, cruel, inhuman, and degrading. A. Martinez spoke with Fanula Nieloin, who is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights. With those detainees, what did they tell you about how they're treated there, about how their life is like there? Well, I think one of the things that my report sort of meticulously documents, and I I start from saying conditions of confinement have improved significantly at Guantanamo Bay, and every single man I spoke to recognized and acknowledged that from the days of their first rendition, and torture, things had certainly got better. And the report reflects that at a minimum, those standards, minimum standards of compliance are met with in terms of the room, the food, access to adequate places to sleep, to exercise, all of those minimum things have certainly been put in place by the US government. But my conversations with these men also reflected deep and profound challenges they experience, and the report details those at some length. Their names are not used. They're called or identified by number. They are shackled when they move inside the facility, including when they met with me. And they spoke at length about their health, their psychological health, their physical health. For many of these men, as my report notes, the difference between the past and the present of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is really thin. And for some of them, that time lapse doesn't exist at all. Many of them experience and describe and evidence profound suffering, profound anxiety. So those were, I think, part of what I reflected in the report, both welcoming, acknowledging, affirming the importance of this visit and the openness that enabled it, but also documenting the really challenging reality of arbitrariness and what I found to be cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment for these men in their day-to-day lives in this detention facility. And and you offered a roadmap to fix the prison. What uh, was in that roadmap? So the place to start is with torture rehabilitation. These are elderly, some of them frail, some of them disabled, many men suffering a variety of health, both psychological and physical ailments. In order to get past that, we have to radically transform healthcare for these men at this detention facility. We need holistic torture rehabilitation. And that means really fixing and rebuilding the bounds of trust of these men and providing holistic, specialized torture rehabilitation. The US is one of the best countries in the world at doing this. It's a leader in torture rehabilitation. And so we have to bring that capacity to bear into the detention facility. We also need these men to have access to their families in a regular way. They cannot recover from torture. 
and they cannot be fully allowed to live their dignified lives if they don't have regular access to their family. And as I note in the report, 20 of these men were cleared. They have been told they can go home. And yet, even as they remain in this facility, they don't have regular, continuous, unimpeded access to their families. But the US government to meet its international human rights obligations, but also to serve as a marker, as a measure for other countries, can and should do better to be fully compliant. Fanula Nealine is a law professor serving as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, as Pride Month comes to a close, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced by state legislatures can actually harm local economies. Partly sunny and near 80 today. There's a slight chance of showers this afternoon. Mid-60s and mostly cloudy tonight. Then we end the week tomorrow with mostly sunny skies and low 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Starbucks workers at the Newton Corner location say they're on strike this morning. It's part of a nationwide strike protesting Starbucks's policy on pride decorations. Starbucks workers say it's also a push to get the company to negotiate contracts with union stores. Starbucks says it has not changed any of its policies related to Pride Month. The head of the Massachusetts School Building Authority plans to retire. Jack McCarthy has been in the position for over a decade. Mary Pacetti will take over the role. She's been with the authority since 2007. Gloucester Beach is considered one of the best in the Northeast. A ranking from USA Today ranks Good Harbor Beach as the seventh best beach in the region. Gloucester's art galleries, businesses, and maritime heritage contributed to its score. Mohegan Bluffs in Rhode Island also made the list. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. Forty-two years ago, Raiders of the Lost Ark introduced audiences to a bullwhip-snapping archaeologist played by Harrison Ford. Now Indiana Jones is back for his fifth and maybe final adventure. My memory's a little fuzzy, but your face rings a bell. Are you still a Nazi? I'm Ari Shapiro, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The news on LGBTQ issues has left some young people feeling alone. Some states have passed laws limiting discussion, removing books, defining genders. And in Colorado, the news includes the conviction of the person who shot and killed five people at a queer nightclub. Colorado Public Radio's Paolo Shalceda says one arts group is helping people to take pride. There's bumpy, bass-heavy club music emanating inside Boulder's public library tonight. Queer teens are putting on a fashion show in looks they designed themselves in a two-week workshop put on by Firehouse Arts Center. Stephen Frost helped organize it. It's now more important than ever to support queer teens and to let them know that they're uh, loved. Frost wants to combat the negative energy they feel looking at how queer communities are treated nationwide. They normally teach college students, but every summer, Frost dedicates two weeks to queer youth. To let them know that there's many other people that have shared their experience in the world, and to let them know that not all people in positions of power are against trans and queer teens. The workshop teaches sewing and clothing design basics. And at the end, the teens celebrate identity and culture in a fashion show called Slay the Runway. Instructor Lily James says queer kids have always found comfort in fashion. Fashion is inherently queer. It's inherently bolder. It's inherently different from what you would see every day. And I would even argue that we wouldn't have a fashion industry without queer people. The kids love it. 14-year-old Aura Charnik is inspired by the memory of punk fashion icon Vivian Westwood. I started doing more research on punk fashion and like a bunch of punk subcultures and I really identified into it. So I started dressing like that more and I figured this was a perfect opportunity to sort of make something inspired by that. Charnik is one of more than a dozen teenagers designing, showing and displaying their creativity. Some, like Z Saling, want their outfit to show the more delicate side of their personality. I am working on like a Barbie princess looking fairy thing. A lot of the times I'm in a more gothic, deep grunge look, and then there's other times like today and with this dress where I'm more princess fairy, so I feel like it's just showing that I can express myself in just different ways, but I can still be the same person. Y'all ready for some fashion? Dimly lit by runway lights, teens surrounded by various iterations of the pride flag each showcase two of their outfits. In front of their friends and family, the kids walked out to music they chose. Charnik, the punk-worshipping 14-year-old, chose the song Plump by Hole. Next, from our Boulder group, we have Aura! I guess I just try my best to be, like, confident, because the sort of punk spirit is like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. And so I try to, like, embody that. For some of the more reserved teens, walking the runway was an opportunity to shed their skin and embody their true selves. Here's Des Calnado. My second one, I was in drag. And I think for me, like when I'm in drag, I have much more confidence because it's like, it's a drag persona. After about an hour, the runway lights turn off, the show ends, and the library goes back to feeling like a library. The teens are allowed to take their outfits home. For them, the world is a runway. For NPR News, I'm Paolo Shalsada in Boulder. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
And I'm Leila Fadel. You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on protests that have turned violent in France. Officials there say they're deploying 40,000 police to quell unrest in response to an officer's fatal shooting of a 17-year-old. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. For much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and Black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Canadian wildfire smoke is reducing air quality across the U.S., including parts of western and central Massachusetts. Russian leaders are working to reassert control after a failed military uprising last weekend. And Virgin Galactic is getting ready to launch its first paying customers into space today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. Partly sunny with highs in the upper 70s today. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. Tonight, mostly cloudy, and it drops to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and in the low 80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. It is stress test season. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Every year, the Federal Reserve tests the nation's biggest banks to make sure they can withstand a major economic shock. And the results of the latest tests are in, and the big banks like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase did very well. These tests are of particular interest right now, given the series of regional but not that small bank failures just a few months ago. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here with more. Morning, Nova. Good morning, Sabri. So I guess that's not uh, really a surprise or shouldn't be a surprise that the big banks passed their annual stress test. We would hope they would. Uh, But were there any surprises in these results? Well, you know, it is notable how well the banks did. Uh, This year's tests envisioned a pretty severe economic downturn. Commercial real estate values plunging 40 percent, house prices down 38 percent, the unemployment rate at 10 percent. That's pretty bad. And the test results show that under that scenario, the biggest banks in the country would lose about $540 billion collectively, but that would still leave them with plenty of cash to conduct business and, importantly, keep lending. And that's important because banks' lending keeps the economy functioning. But not, uh, not everyone was impressed by these results, apparently. Why is that? Right. And if you look at the results, among the top performers was Credit Suisse USA. 
So that tells you something right there. The Swiss government had to engineer a takeover of that bank to keep it from failing. And there's a left-leaning Washington, D.C. advocacy group called Better Markets. They called the results the Fed's stressless stress tests. So that's pretty clever. Uh, Their argument is essentially that the Fed requires too little in cash reserves from big banks. And that considering the bank failures we just had a few months ago, it's hard to argue that everything is fine. Uh, So season the results, uh, Sabri, with a big grain of salt. All right. Marketplace's Nova Safo, thank you so much. You're welcome. Virgin Galactic is set to launch its first commercial rocket plane spaceflight, the VSS Unity, today. The spacecraft launches from a high-altitude plane. This trip isn't tourism, per se. It's being described as scientific. The crew plans to collect biometric data and conduct tests. But Virgin says it has a wait list of 800 customers hoping to experience a trip to space and back. The company is one of a handful of private firms, including SpaceX and Blue Origin, that are working on space tourism. Here's Reuters space reporter Joey Roulette. Virgin Galactic has done a few of these flights before, but this will be the first revenue-generating mission for the company um, and their first commercial mission. Right now, the company is charging $450,000 for tourists per seat. Joey Roulette with Reuters. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down six-tenths of a percent. S&P, Dow, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the three to four-tenths percent range, with Dow futures up 127 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.798%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Forever Ago, it's a history show for the whole family. The podcast makes learning about the past fun while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Pride Month in the U.S. is wrapping up. It does so at a time when LGBTQ rights have become particularly contentious. The Human Rights Campaign says 70 laws that it considers anti-LGBTQ have been enacted across the country so far this year. But culture wars aside, there is an economic argument to be made for inclusivity. Lee Badgett is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and makes that argument in her book, The Economic Case for LGBT Equality, Why Fair and Equal Treatment Benefits Us All. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. At a macro level, you found that more inclusive policies for lesbian, gay, bisexual folks actually corresponds with higher GDP Let me first ask, how strong is this connection? It's strong. We see the correlation even after we control for all the other kinds of things that affect how well the economies do, and even taking into account how much gender equality there is. So in the context of countries overall, we found that having an extra law, being a little bit more legally inclusive, was worth roughly $2,000 in GDP per capita. I think people may hear that and think, well, oh, it's just because rich countries are more likely to be more inclusive and that's all that is. Is that the case or is there, you know, a mechanism at work here? I think that's partly the case, but there's clearly something else going on underneath it. When young LGBT people go to school, the most common thing they experience is bullying. And we know from research that that leads to lower GPAs. People are more likely to drop out or be absent from school. They're not as likely to go on to get university educations. So it's holding back 
their ability to develop human capital. That's, you know, the skills, the knowledge, the creativity that economies rely on to grow. And then in the workplace, that kind of harassment and discrimination that's very common in every country that's ever been studied shows that that's a potential drain on productivity as well. So I think, you know, thinking about how much those might look, if we could put monetary values on them, and and I've tried to do that and some other people have done that, it still adds up to a big hit to GDP of about 1% or more in some countries. It's interesting to look at that at the macro level, because at the more micro level, we have seen some examples where, for example, North Carolina had a bathroom bill. It was costly to that state. On the other hand, Bud Light tried to be more inclusive, and it cost them quite a bit of business. How does this translate to sort of the micro level? Yeah, well, for North Carolina, it translated to billions of dollars in lost business opportunities. I think, you know, the Bud Light example is a a really interesting one. I think they weren't quite ready for what happened and they hadn't thought through their marketing strategy very well, I think. Businesses are, I think, most of them are sticking with their with their policies of inclusion because they've worked for them. We know from research, it's led to higher profits, higher stock prices, higher productivity when companies are more inclusive. So I don't think they're going to be going backwards either. Lee Badgett is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Near 80 today under partly sunny skies. There's a slight chance we may see some showers this afternoon. Tonight, overcast and mid-60s. Then it'll be Friday and we'll have mostly sunny skies along with temperatures in the low 80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.